So we're in this uh, final message on the book of Psalms. And, you know, the Psalms is the prayer book of the Bible, like we've been saying for the last several months. And I really love the explanation that Tim Keller provides in the book of Psalms. I think actually Peter Chernus mentioned this same little illustration uh, when he preached here a couple of weeks ago. But, you know, we have uh, two false ways of dealing with human emotion. There's the way of religious people, which would say that you're supposed to stuff your emotions, that emotions are bad. You don't want to ever admit that you don't have it all put together. So just hide it away. Pretend it doesn't exist. But then on the other hand, there's the secular way, which is to worship your emotions and to say you are what you feel. And if anyone tells you otherwise, don't listen to them. But what we've been looking at in the book of Psalms is actually a a, a sort of a gospel third way to deal with emotion, which is to pray your emotions to God. And we've covered so many different varieties of of human experience. And, and, you know, there's been anger, despair, uh, uh, um, all all kinds of different forms of human emotion that we've seen in the book of Psalms. Tonight, um, we're looking at the very last psalm in the psalm book. Because I just had this realization earlier this week that one kind of psalm we actually had not looked at yet is a psalm of praise. And for, for reasons that you're going to see in just a minute, uh, the psalms of praise are, are, are kind of a sweet spot in the book of Psalms. You can't do a series on the book of Psalms without talking about one of the psalms of praise. So uh, we're going to look at Psalm 150. It's the very last psalm. It's kind of the praise psalm of the entire book of Psalms. And so uh, grab a Bible if you've got one. Uh, you know, you can do the whole uh, I'm a hip and cool millennial Gen Z person and do it on your phone. However, I'm old-fashioned, so I've got like an actual, you know, paper, print, book-bound Bible here. And I'm going to read Psalm 150. Short little psalm here. Psalm 150. Praise the Lord. Praise God in His sanctuary. Praise Him in His mighty heavens. Praise Him for His acts of power. Praise him for his surprising, or surprising, surpassing greatness. You know, his greatness actually is pretty surprising when you think about it. Uh, praise him for his surpassing greatness. Praise him with the sounding of the trumpet. Praise him with the lyre, uh, with the harp and lyre. Praise him with tambourine and dancing. Praise him with the strings and flute. Praise him with the clash of cymbals. Praise him with resounding cymbals. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. I'm going to just pray, and then we're going to look at the psalm. Father, thank you that you've brought us to the end of this book. I mean, we haven't done the whole thing, but uh, thank you for nevertheless bringing us to the end of this book tonight. God, would we just walk away with a deeper understanding of what it looks like to actually not only worship you, but just know you um, in in a deeper way uh, based on what this psalm says. And I pray that in Jesus' name, uh, for his sake, amen. Okay, so uh, this little psalm is six verses. It's really short. I'm going to try to keep this really short. I'm just going to look at four really quick things that this psalm tells you about what it looks like to praise God. So four things. Number one, the place of praise. Number two, the meaning of praise. Number three, the variety of praise. And then number four, the power of praise. And just as we do that, I'm going to move this chair here. It's kind of like, I feel boxed. Okay, so first of all, the place of praise. Um, so as I said, this psalm is the very last book, uh, psalm in the entire book of Psalms. And, and that placement is actually significant. Um, the reason why is that when you read through the psalms, especially like the beginning psalms and the middle psalms, 
um, what you find is that the emotions they tend to deal with are things like anguish, uh, doubt, fear, despair, which of course is why the Psalms are so great. You know, the Psalms are raw, you know, they're honest, they're, they're true to life. But, but when you come to the last several Psalms in the book of Psalms, uh, particularly the final five, so numbers 146 to, number, uh, to 150, you'll notice that all of these Psalms are totally unrestrained, unadulterated, a totally exuberant praise. And that order is not accidental uh, because it's an order that actually carries a message. So the message is that it all ends in praise. It all ends in praise. What Psalm 150 is saying is that if you're a Christian, then no matter your emotional starting point, you know, no matter the struggle that you're facing in life, the best is yet to come. One day, the anguish, the doubt, and the fear, and the despair is going to give way to praise. If you're a Christian, that promise is for you. Confession of sin gives way to the joy of forgiveness. Admitting your doubts gives way to the light of truth piercing through. And running to God with your fears gives way to the comfort of his embrace. And this message of of going from from where we are to, to eventually everything giving way to praise, you know, that message is encoded in just about every single one of the Psalms. I mean, if you take just about any of the Psalms, with a couple exceptions... Every single one passes from, you know, from this place of anguish or, 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 or of pain through reminders of who God is. And it finally ends with some form of confidence that God is who he says he is. That, that you know, when all is said and done, it's all going to be all right. And now what we find out is that that very message is actually embedded in the entire, like, superstructure of the book of Psalms. So there's a deliberate way that they've been arranged. Now... There, there are some very practical takeaways from this, and I want to just give you two of them. Um, number one, and I think this is really important, number one is patience. Patience. Um, the reason I say this is that I think a lot of times uh, Christians especially can be notorious for being a bunch of Pollyannas. Um, and what I mean by that is that, that we're really, really good at dismissing or downplaying the reality of pain and suffering. So for example, maybe this has happened to you. Um, you're struggling with something. You, um, <laughs> for better or for worse, tell another Christian friend about it. And what does that person say? They try to find a quick fix. Has it maybe ever happened to you? I, I, I'd be surprised if, uh, if uh, no one here can, can relate to this. I'm sure some of you can. You know, you, you know here's what we do. We, we try to find a quick fix, and we say, well, you know, have you, have you read your Bible enough? Have you, have you prayed enough? Have you confessed all known sin? Do, do you have someone who's holding you accountable? You know, all, all good things, of course. I'm not trying to say that they're not. But look, sometimes God is playing the long game, you know? And instead of working through just the quick fix, you know, he can do that, of course. But sometimes God actually allows transformation to take a long time. And, man, in my experience, when in the course of life you realize this, um, when you kind of realize that, that, that we're not going to change completely right away, um, that we're not able to just, like, snap our fingers and all of a sudden, like, be 100% perfectly like Jesus, usually our reaction to that is to kind of freak out and to think, oh, my gosh, like, I'm so broken. You know, is there any hope 
for me? Like, am I always going to be like this? Um, I, I don't know where Devante is. Devante had his wisdom teeth out uh, earlier this week. It's so good to have him back, by the way, isn't it? Um, but, you know, I just, when, I, when I heard that, I thought of that video from, like, probably 10 years ago of David at the dentist. Have you guys seen this? You know, the kid who's, like, he's probably, like, a six-year-old kid, and he gets his wisdom teeth out, so he's kind of on the anesthetic after the surgery, and he's all loopy. And, you know, he feels all loopy, and at one point he just kind of, like, without even knowing what he's saying, says, is this going to be forever? And I think sometimes that's exactly the feeling you have. It's like, oh my gosh, is this going to be forever? Am I really going to be like having to deal with all of this stuff in my life? What this psalm, what, what, what the psalms are saying is that transformation can take a long time. You know, like it eventually will give way to praise. But, you know, it might take you 150 psalms to get there, so to speak. And look, if God is patient with us, then what right do we have to treat ourselves any differently than the way he treats us? I mean, it also means, by the way, that, that you can be patient not just with yourself, but with one another. Um, you know, look, I think one of the reasons a lot of times we try to find a quick fix for, you know, your, your friend's problems or what have you is that uh, we're actually too scared to dive into the mess of another person's life. It's a whole lot easier just to try to find a quick fix for someone than to actually step into the muck and mire of a person's life. And yet this is what Jesus did. He came down and got so involved in the muck and mess of our lives that he actually became a human being. And when you grasp that sometimes transformation, the, the, the movement from prayer to praise can take a long time, it'll help you treat other people like Jesus did with that same kind of great patience. So takeaway number one is, is patience. Takeaway number two is hope. This is kind of the obvious takeaway. You know, needless to say, this whole idea um, that everything ends in praise, that's one of enormous hope. You know, like, look, I, I don't know what you're going through. Um, I, I don't know what, what has been brought into the room tonight. Um, and I don't know what our world is going to go through in the next, you know, four to six months even. But our hope is not um, in who gets elected in November our hope is not in a coronavirus vaccine. It's not in the future of the United States of America. Our hope is in Jesus, who has promised that the best is yet to come. Uh, I had the most extraordinary week this week because um, I made a pretty amazing discovery. I, I came across um, a letter, and a um, letter that was written by a German pastor to his parents. Um, this was during you know, the Nazi period. Um, and he's a guy who speaks out against the Nazis. And as a result, he's arrested, put in prison. The day that he's going to be executed, um, he writes this letter to his parents. Now, this is, you know, this is not like Dietrich Bonhoeffer or something that no one, anyone's probably ever heard of. Um, let me just, I want to read this to you. Um, this, is, this is so cool. He says, uh, you know, dear parents, when this letter comes into your hands, I shall no longer be among the living. The thing that has occupied our thoughts for many months, never leaving them free, is now about to happen. If you ask me what state I am in, I can only answer, I am first in a joyous mood and second filled with great anticipation. Today means the end of all suffering and all earthly sorrow for me, and God will wipe away every tear from your eyes. What consolation, what marvelous strength emanates from faith in Christ. In Him I put my faith and precisely today, I have faith in him more firmly than ever, and I shall not be confounded. This day brings the greatest hour of my life. 
everything that I've done till now, struggled for and accomplished, has at bottom been directed to this one goal, whose barrier I shall penetrate today. I hath not seen, nor ear heard, nor has it entered into the heart of man what things God has prepared for those who love him. For me, believing will become seeing, hope will become possession, and I shall forever share in him who is love. Should I not then be filled with anticipation? What is it going to be like? The things that up to this time I've been permitted to preach about, I shall now see. How could I fail to be excited and full of anticipation? From the very beginning, I put everything into the hands of God. If now he demands this end of me, good, his will be done. Until we meet again, above in the presence of the Father of light, your joyful Herman. He's bouncing up the walls. Isn't this just the coolest thing you've ever heard? I don't know. I think it's really cool. I don't know what kind of life this, this man lived, but judging by the fact that he was imprisoned and beheaded by the Nazis at the age of 31, um, that's just three years older than I am, <laughs> I think it's fair to say that his was a life that included significant trial and tribulation. And yet look at this. At the end of it all, the resounding note of his entire life is praise. Is praise. And if you're a Christian here tonight, then it can be yours as well. And so, uh, you know, look, we've barely even looked at the text of this psalm. But just, if you hear nothing else tonight, then just hear this. That in Jesus, there is hope. There is hope that one day it'll all end in praise. So, uh, number one, the place of praise. Number two, uh, let's actually get into the text here. Uh, and, uh, and just this one is the meaning of praise. What does that actually mean? Um, and so, uh, you know, look at the, the very first word in this psalm is the word praise. It appears, I think, uh, what, 13 times? I, I just want to step back and ask, what does that actually mean? You know, when the Bible so many times says, praise the Lord, um, have you ever stopped and thought about, like, what does that entail? What does the Bible say that is? Um, I want to give you a definition of, of what I think that is. I mean, it's hinted at here in this psalm. Um, it's confirmed in countless other places throughout the Bible. And, and here it is. Here it is. I would suggest to you that praise is to delight in God for who he is and what he has done for us. Uh, to delight in God for who he is and what he's done for us. So uh, let, me, let me just break that down. Uh, one of the puzzling things about the Bible is that the Bible doesn't, it doesn't just encourage you to, to praise God. Um, it actually commands it. So if you look at this psalm, you know, I think almost every or maybe every usage of the word praise, it's an imperative, you know, for all you grammar guys out there. You know, you know imperative, that means a command. Um, so the puzzle is, well, why does the Bible put it this way? Um, because you could almost look at that and think, well, this almost seems to suggest that God is petty. Um, you know, almost as though God is like this insecure dictator and that he needs people to praise him in order to stoke his ego. Um, and, and the question is, is that why the Bible tells us to praise God? Um, and the answer to that is no, absolutely not. Um, one, one of the people who, who I think expressed uh, what's really going on here better than anyone else is, uh, very predictably, C.S. Lewis. He has a way of doing that. And I'm going to read you a quote of his. This is from his book, uh, Reflections on the Psalms. And uh, he's describing, essentially, like a great discovery that he makes one day about why it is the Psalms and other places in the Bible actually command you to praise God. So let me just read what he says. He says, 
uh, that to him, the most obvious fact about praise, whether of God or anything, strangely escaped me. I thought of it in terms of compliment, approval, or the giving of honor. I had never noticed that all enjoyment spontaneously overflows into praise. I'm going to read that line one more time. Uh, He said, I had never noticed that all enjoyment spontaneously overflows into praise. I had not noticed either that just as men spontaneously praise whatever they value, so they spontaneously urge us to join them in praising it. Kind of give some examples here. What do we say? We say, isn't she lovely? Wasn't it glorious? Don't you think that's just magnificent? The, the psalmist in telling everyone to praise God are doing what all men do when they speak of what they care about. Now, now, what is he saying here? What he's saying is that all praise is fundamentally just another word for delight. Delight. That the reason the Bible would command us to praise God is, is because to not delight in God is actually to completely misunderstand who you're dealing with. The difference between a Christian and a non-Christian is that a non-Christian may well find God useful. I mean, you know, who wouldn't want an all-powerful God who would answer your prayers? But, but a Christian is someone who finds God beautiful. Not just useful, but beautiful. And I want to ask you that. Do you find God beautiful? Do you enjoy you know, could you say that of yourself? Do you, is God someone that you delight in? There are a couple of things that this psalm kind of points to that, that fleshes that a little bit more. So look at verse 2. Uh, it says, it gives you here two ways uh, that, that delighting in God, how that can look. Uh, so verse 2, it says, praise him for his acts of power. Praise him for his surpassing greatness. So first part says that you can delight in God for what he has done, you know, for his acts of power. Um, second part says, you can also delight in God for who he is. And it says there for his surpassing greatness, you know, kind of points more to his character. And so what that means is that when you put it all together, that's why a working definition of praise can be that it's delighting in God for who he is and what he's done for us. Um, so let me just give you some personal examples of, of this, um, just of, of ways I've seen that play out um, in my own life. I remember a couple of years ago. Um, I was in a place called Zion National Park. Any people ever been to Zion National Park? It is one of the most beautiful places on the face of the earth. Um, if you guys ever want to take a road trip there, like, count me in. <laughs> uh, I remember one day I'm, I'm on a hike, and this hike is literally a riverbed. I mean, that's the trail. And on either side, there's this, you know, these massive 200-foot-high red rock wall cliffs. It's probably the most beautiful, one of the most beautiful things in nature I think I've ever seen. And I got so overwhelmed by this that I found myself just delighting in God because he created it. I'm just delighting in God for who he is as creator. Or, you know, I can't tell you how many times I've listened to a piece of music. And I just find myself delighting in God because he's the source of all beauty. You know, or you can delight in God because of of his gentleness. You know, like one of my favorite verses is in Isaiah where it says, A bruised reed he will not break. And a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. I love that verse because I was a bruiser and he didn't break me. You can praise him for his justice. You know, look, like, clearly we're not finding justice, even though everyone seems to be searching for it right now. But, but God is a God of justice. 
You can praise him for his care and concern for the least of these. That God actually has a bias for the poor and for the downcast. Um, But you also can delight in God for what he has done. You know, one of the most profound questions I think the Bible asks is in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Where Paul says, what do you have that you have not received? Uh, Now, just kind of think about that for a minute. You know, you can kind of uh, make a little logic train there. You know, so think about this. Like, why why do I have the shirt on my back? Um, You know, why do you have the shirt on your back? You you, you could kind of trace it back and say, well, you know, because I bought it. Okay. Well, where did you get the money to buy it? Well, you know, I got the money from the job that I have. Well, how did you get the job that you have? Well, I got the job that I had because I got the education that I needed to have the job. Well, how did you get the education needed to have the job? Well, I went to school. I worked really hard. I did all my homework. You know, I got good grades. Well, how did that happen? Well, because you had parents that, 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 that helped you through that. You might have advocated for your education, you know, or maybe you just like had parents who gave you really good genes and you're just, you know, a little more able to do school than the average person or whatever it is. You can trace it all the way back, and when you do that, you discover that, that you can't claim any of it. You know, like, you can't control who your parents are. You can't control the genes you get. You can't control, you know, just sort of your, your natural IQ. You can't even control the country you're born into. You know, like, okay, I have money to buy the shirt on my back. Well, what would have happened if I had been born into a country or a culture that has to live on a dollar a day? I would probably not have the shirt on my back. So the point is... We want to claim that all the good things we have in our lives is because of our blood, sweat, and tears. But in reality, most everything that we have, in some form, everything that we have is because of forces beyond our control. You know, if I were saying this in kind of a secular way, I would just say it's because I got lucky. But what the Bible says is that the, the real answer is that God gave it to me. Every good and perfect gift is from above that comes down from the Father of heavenly lights that does not, who does not change like shifting shadows. Um, you know, I heard once about a little um, a book that's like a, a book on how to pray. It's this old book, you know, this old-time author. And I, I think I remember hearing that he spends like, you know, 20, 30 pages talking about like how you should pray when you're sitting down to a meal. Because to this guy, it was just so mind-blowing that like God gives him food. You ever think about that? Like how amazing that like we get three meals a day. You know, you, you, could, you could take anything, money, power, smarts. What, what do you have that you haven't received? And so the reason it makes sense to delight in God is because everything we have is a good gift from him. It all comes from something that he's done for us. Uh, now, now, by the way, um, it's worth pointing out, this, this is point number three. This is going to go down, by the way. It's probably the quickest point ever in Thrive History. Really quick, variety of praise. By the way, that kind of delight in God, that kind of praise, can look all kinds of different ways. So, like, if you look at this psalm... In verses 3 through 5, you got this huge long list of all these different ways that they're praising God. You know, orchestra people, this is, this is for you. You know, there's the trump, there's the harp, there's the strings, there's the flute, there's the cymbals. Um, and it's not just music because verse 6 says, let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Um, so, you know, animals have breath. You know, animals must be included in that. Well, you know, animals can't worship God through music. And so, so the Bible is filled with all kinds of examples of the way that praise is going to look different. You know, just think about the life of one person. You know, think King David and how just in his single life, there are all these examples of ways that, that he found to delight in God for who he is and what he's done for him. So, uh, you know, David is a musician. He writes a bunch of the Psalms. He uses music and song to praise God. Uh, 2 Samuel chapter 6, he dances to praise God. 
you know, Psalm 27, which we looked at last week, you know, he, he praises God through just like meditating on him, just like contemplating who he is. He says, I want to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. I want to seek him in his temple. Uh, I would even say that David uses like action and, and, and um, warfare to serve God. You know, 1 Samuel 17, he runs up to Goliath. He's about to, to, to fight this guy. And he says, who is this uncircumcised Philistine who defies the armies of the living God? Like he's giving glory to God by swinging a sword around. Um, or, you know, um, there are some people out there, David must have been one of them, who really connects with God through sacred tradition. You know, things like more traditional church services and liturgy and things like that. David was the guy who set all that up in the Old Testament, the, the system of worship in uh, the book of First Chronicles. And so the point is that the same thing applies in the body of Christ. You know, there are going to be some people among us here who probably find it easier uh, to praise God through loud, exuberant music. Uh, other people here who, who best do that through more quiet, meditative practices, you know, maybe, a, a, like I said, the, the liturgy. Um, some people worship God best when they, when they feel his favor best when they're serving the poor um, and, and the downcast or, or others. I think I'm probably one of these people. Um, praise God through like just gleaning insight about who he is through his word. Uh, and, and the reason I bring this up is that, look, you know, what we do in the body of Christ when it comes to praise is a lot of times we just take shots at each other. And uh, we don't say this out loud usually, but what we do is we say, well, you know, that guy doesn't sing as enthusiastically as I do. You know? or, or that person is weird. Look at the weird way that they're worshiping. You know, or um, you know, we, we just try to take each other down and to say I'm better than you because of how I do it. But look, the form doesn't matter so much as the heart that all goes back to a heart of delighting in God for who he is and what he's done for us. All the varieties of praise in this psalm are appointed to that. Okay, coming out of that. Very last thing, number four, the power of praise. Um, just, you know, uh, probably the better way to put this, it's not, it's not just the power of praise. It's the power for praise. Um, as we've been talking about all this, I, I don't know how this hits you. Um, I don't know for how many people that the concept of actually delighting in God um, feels kind of foreign, maybe feels new to you. Um, it could be that there are people here who grew up going to a church that you might describe as legalistic. Um, you know, just a version of Christianity that felt like a, a, it was all about a bunch of behaviors. Here's the ones that are allowed. Here's the ones that aren't allowed. You've got to fit in this box. And so the idea of actually having a love relationship with God, the idea of actually delighting in God, feels a little foreign. And look, whether that's your background or you come from some other background, the reality is, is that every single person is in need of, the, of power in order to praise God because every single one of us have hearts that do not naturally delight in God. The hearts that we have by nature are selfish. And the one that we want to worship the most is us. It's us. And so what that means is that if true praise is going to happen, if it really is going to go all the way to end in praise, then, then we need a heart transformation. And that's the reason why the place that I want to land this plane tonight for this message and actually for this entire series um, is with the only thing that has the power to bring that transformation, and that's the gospel of Jesus. And if you want to have reason. For delighting in Jesus. Reason to delight in Jesus in a way that just feels so organic and natural. It just overflows out of you. Then just 
Think about who he is. You know? Just think about what he's done. Um, just look at Jesus. You know, Jesus is the one who, for all of eternity, um, experienced all of the, 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 the favor, the love, the wealth, the praise, the worship of, of heaven. But, but from there, from his position of absolute authority, he looked down. And he saw uh, the human race that had been given everything, that had squandered all that God had given them and had turned away in sin. And he looked down, and he didn't just look down with a finger of judgment, but he looked down with compassion. And he said, I don't want to abandon them to their own fate. And so he didn't just look down, he came down. And the person of Jesus, he was born in poverty, and he, and he was born into a world as a vulnerable human being, so vulnerable that we were able to kill him on a cross for crimes that he did not commit. And he didn't just like get stuck in the crossfire of, of, of our human scheming. It says that, you know, Jesus says, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down on my own accord. He looked down. He came down. He laid down his life as a sacrifice for, for sin. And then finally, when God vindicated him by saying, this sacrifice, it, it perfectly satisfies all of my requirements as a righteous God. He raised him from the dead, allowed him to ascend up into heaven where he sat down at the right hand of the Father from which he is ruling and reigning over all of heaven and earth right now. I mean, that's who we're talking about when we're talking about praising God. We're talking about Jesus. Um, and I just want to kind of put some flesh on these bones with just one final story. Um, Brad, if you're here, this one's for you. This is about uh, a Polish guy. Uh, if you guys want to learn about Poland, talk to Brad. So, uh, you know, many unsung heroes during World War II. Um, we talked about one of them already. Another one involves a story about a guy uh, named Francis Gajwanicek. Um, and Francis Gajwanicek uh, was uh, in, a, in, a, in a German camp during the war. And at one point, while he's there in that camp, um, one of the, I think one of the other prisoners um, broke a rule, stole something. And so as a reprisal, uh, the Germans announced to the prisoners that they were going to take 10 people at random and, and put them in solitary confinement where they were going to be doomed to die. And one day, as they're all standing to attention, Francis Gajwanicek is one of the ten people who's randomly chosen. And as he hears his name read out, he cries out and he says, "But you know, please have mercy on me. I have a wife and a family. Well, at that moment, another prisoner, a, a Catholic priest uh, by the name of Maximilian Kolbe steps forward. And he says, um, I'm a Catholic priest. I don't have a family. I want to take that man's place. And, and they allowed him to take Francis Gawinichek's place. Maximilian Kolbe was put into solitary confinement. Um, and within a number of days, uh, he died. Now, I, I just want you for, for, for a minute to, to, uh, you just to imagine that scene. You know, imagine that you are Francis Gawinichek. And you're standing there in that line. And you know that, that there's a sentence of doom over your head. And then all of a sudden... This man that you don't even know, that owes you nothing, steps forward and says, I want to die in his place. You know, after the war, Francis Gawanichek, he survived. Um, and he devoted himself to traveling around the world to share about what Maximilian Kolbe had done for him. And in fact, this is crazy to me. If you go on his Wikipedia page, this is the very first sentence. 
You know, usually the first sentence on a Wikipedia page, as you probably know, is sort of like a, a, a short summary of why the person is significant. Here's why Francis Gawinichek is significant. It says, Francis Gawinichek was a Polish army sergeant whose life was saved at Auschwitz by priest Maximilian Kolbe, who volunteered to die in his place. I think this is so cool. You know, one day, I, I hope I never have a Wikipedia page. If for some reason I ever do have a Wikipedia page, you know what I wanted to say? I wanted to say, Michael Bautersa was an American youth worker whose life was saved by Jesus Christ, who volunteered to die in his place. Because that is the most important thing about me. Is it the most important thing about you? When you think of your life, do, do you live with, with just the constant recognition that you are here because Jesus Christ stepped forward and volunteered to die in your place? <laughs> That's the power for praise. That's the power of praise. You know, if, if, if Francis Gawinichek could travel around the world to tell other people about what another just normal human being had done, just think of how much praise ought to be welling up out of our hearts for what Jesus Christ has done. And if you see him, if you look at the cross, and you remember that he volunteered to die in your place, that is where the power to delight in God for who he is and what he has done comes from. And that's praise.